0: I'll, I'll bear my soul early, I'll tell you, I'm, uh, these things are always, you know, I'm always a little nervous when I, whenever I preach, but this one, for whatever reason, is particularly gut-wrenching, and I don't know why exactly, I, I, I will, I will warn you, I was up at four something this morning just because, you know, I couldn't quite get the sermon to land right, and, um, And and that's not my normal practice. And so this is either going to be super awesome because God's told, and I I think he is in it, but um, it's going to either going to be super awesome or it's going to be a dumpster fire and we're all going to, we're all going to go in it together. All right. So let's pray to get started and we're going to jump right in and God, I am thankful for this opportunity to be here. I'm thankful for uh, just my, my spiritual family here and I'm thankful for my family family here this morning as well. I just pray your blessing on, um, on the time that you have given me to, to look at your word, and I'm thankful for the blessing of your word and the things that you reveal in it. And I pray that I would be faithful to um, build a bridge uh, to make these things applicable, to make these things meaningful, and to allow us all to have the hope that you share in this passage, God. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. And for those of you who have not heard this story, we're talking about Jesus and the rich young man, or the rich young ruler. Uh, uh, this may not what I'm about to say may not make a lot of sense. But for those of you who have heard this story, most often, uh, most often we hear this is some kind of a proof text to be more generous, to be a better person, to be more sacrificial. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Um, and I want to I share that's really not what this passage is about. Um, and so I, I want to share this passage really is a picture of the gospel and competing gospels, that the world has a gospel And Christ and the church have a gospel. Christianity, there's a gospel, and they compete with one another. And there's an evangelist, um, William Fay, who's pretty famous for talking about the fact that there are really two religions in the world. One of them says you can do something to get to heaven, and one of them says you can do nothing to get to heaven. And when you look at all of the religions of the world, they're going to fall into two camps. One's going to say you can do something. Here's your list of rules. One's going to say, you can't do anything at all. And uh, I've heard the story of just numerous scholars and theologians getting together, talking about what are the Christian distinctives? What are the thing, what's the thing that makes Christianity different than every other religion? And they talked about a number of different things, and C.S. Lewis comes in the room, and they say, what do you say? And he said, it's grace. Grace is the Christian distinctive. Grace is the, um, Christianity is the one religion where you can do nothing to get to heaven, that it requires God's grace. And that's what this passage is really about. And for those of you who are worried about me coming up here and telling you that you had to sell all of your possessions and give them to the poor, um, (laughs) <laughs> it's a lot worse than that. So you're going to warn her right now. Strap in. It's going to be a long 40 minutes. Um, I want to start by reading the passage. It's a good story. It's, I think, engaging, entertaining. Um, I do think it's interesting that we think of this story, and even if you read in your Bibles, you'll see it'll be, you know, the story of the rich young ruler or the story of the rich young man that we think of it as the story of the rich young man instead of the story of the triumphant disciples. Um, And I think that might be because we relate more to the rich young man. And so let me read the text and we'll dive in. This is starting Matthew 19, starting with verse 16 and going through 30. And I'm reading from the ESV. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life but many who are first will be last and last first. If ever there was a person who from the, uh, the world's standards might be able to get into the kingdom of heaven, it was going to be a rich young man. The Bible talks about several cases in which uh, God links God's blessing with righteousness or obedience. And we think of Job, who was both wealthy and was um, righteous. And we think of Abraham, who was wealthy and pretty righteous. Um, And we think of David, who was pretty wealthy and pretty righteous. And so the, the Hebrews, they linked wealth and prosperity with God's blessing and being a righteous person. And you read in other places in scripture where the Pharisees gave all, made the show of giving money to the poor. It's because they had money. And we have our own, I'd be a little careful, we have our own version of this with the prosperity gospel, um, where we kind of have this idea, if you believe that, and we don't, but where they believe that if, you know, if you give, God's going to give more. And if you're a better person, God's going to bless you and those kinds of things. And, and we do believe that if you're obedient to Christ, God's going to give you blessings. They're not always going to be financial though. Um, but they kind of had this idea. So you have this rich person and you have this young person. And the nice thing about being young is that you've had less time to really screw things up. Um, and, and I'm 52 now, going on 100. And ministry will do that to you. Um, no, but uh, but yeah, now I look back and it's like, yeah, I have, even as a Christian, I've been a mess. I've done a lot of things that I really kind of wish I could take back, things I've said, things I've done. It's not surprising, if you remember in John 8, there's a woman who is caught in adultery and they say, should we stone her? And Jesus says, those who are without sin cast the first stone. And it's not a surprise that the first people to walk away are the old people, (laughs) because they've had the time to really screw things up. So if anyone from the world standards was going to make it, this was the guy, he's young, he's rich, um, and he's genuine. Sometimes in the Bible, you read these kind of Pharisees and these scribes, and they try to trap Jesus into these uh, questions. That question about, should we stone you know, this woman caught in adultery, was intended to be a trap. Because if you said, yeah, stone him, well, that went against Roman law. If they said, don't stone him, well, that went against Jewish law. But this wasn't a trap. This was a guy who's legitimately asking the question. He's genuine. And he seems like he's genuinely a good guy. I think he's legitimate when he says, you know what? All, that, all those laws you gave me, I think I've kept them. I've been pretty good. And so if ever there was a person who on their own merit could get in, it was probably gonna be this guy. And he asked the question, what good deed do I do to get eternal life? And Jesus gives the response, Why do you ask me about what's good? Only God's good. And that's the real answer to the question. The real answer to the question isn't, What good deed can I do to get to eternal, to get to eternal life? The real question is, Who do you say Jesus is? Because none of us can get to eternal life without Jesus. So if you understand what Jesus is and who Jesus is, and you accept that, that's really all you need to know. But the way this man has framed this question, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life, has given you the perspective that this, that this man is coming from. And it is the world's gospel. And in verse 16, he says, "And behold, a man came up to him saying, "Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life?" And I will tell you, most people in the world believe in an eternal life. There's something in most people that knows that this isn't it, that something happens after we die." Um, William Faith, same guy I cited earlier. He has five questions that he asks people. And the first one, one of them is, do you believe in heaven? And then he has a follow-up question. He says, do you think you're going? And he talked about, and I've seen this myself, he talked about the number of people who answer the question, do you think there's a heaven? They say, no. And he says, well, do you think you're going? And they say, yeah. But <laughs> well, one of them is a heart question, right? And one of them is a head question. And the head question is, do you think cerebrally, do you think that there's a heaven? And you go, oh, you know, whatever. The hard question is, do you think you're going? That there's something in people's hearts that knows that there is an eternity. Um, and they know when we die, this isn't it. This isn't all there is. And I think the world, by and large, understands that. And you're going to find people in the world that reject that notion. They're atheists or whatever. But for the most part, people in the world seem to understand that. But they also seem to think there's something they can do to get to heaven. It's what we would call a workspace salvation. He says, what good deed must I do? And the idea is that salvation is in the hands of each of us, that somehow we can figure it out. And I will tell you, early in my journey to Christ, I took a class in, it was man, God, and, Western, man, God, and literature in Western society. It was taught by an um, atheistic existentialist professor. And we looked at the book of John. And one of the things, it's just interesting how God uses people. But one of the things I figured out pretty early was, if it's left to people, they're going to screw it up. People, if they're responsible for it on their own, they're going to find a way to screw it up. I was enough of a cynic to have a lot of confidence in that. But that was really, really important in my coming to Christ. One, knowing that there was, in fact, a Christian distinctive, and that was grace. And two, knowing that Christianity was the only religion that didn't leave it up to people to figure it out. The world's gospel says you figure it out here's the list of rules. Maybe it's the Dharma. Maybe it's the, uh, the five pillars of Islam. Maybe it's the commandments of the Old Testament. You figure it out. Um, but Jesus highlights the problems with the world standard. The first one is it's impossible. Jesus' answer to what good deed must I do to have eternal life? He says, well, keep the commandments. Now remember, they didn't have a New Testament in front of them at that time, right? They had the Old Testament. So I did my Google search. You feel free to do the same thing. Um, according to the Mitzvot, there are six hundred and thirteen commandments. Um, some of them are really hard, like don't covet, like don't lie. Some of them are easier, like I've managed to get fit through 52 years of life and not physically murder anybody, right? Now, I, you know, I can't honestly, if you apply the, the Sermon on the Mount to it, I can't honestly say that I haven't, you know, had some angry thoughts about some people that probably cross that line. But, um, but you know, 613 commandments, there's a lot going on there, Um. Not committing adultery seems okay until Jesus says, if you look lustfully upon another, it's adultery of the heart. Murder seems it's okay until Jesus says, uh, if you hate another person, you committed murder in your heart. It's like, Jesus, this is hard enough without you really making what our external signs heart issues. But the point is, and the point of the law is, there's no way for us to perfectly keep the commandments. The good news is the law was never intended to be a way for us to attain eternal life. It was to point us to the fact that we can't do it on our own. It was to make us aware of the fact that we were going to need someone to accomplish righteousness on our behalf. Galatians 324 says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Other translations read that as tutor, but the law guarded us from sin, letting us know God's best for us, but it also taught us of our own inadequacy to perfectly keep the commandments. The sacrifices in the Old Testament were a reminder of this fact that we couldn't be sinless and that life would have to be given for a payment of the sin. And we sang about that life this morning. Um, but it is natural, this rich young ruler said, Keep the commandments. He says, Well, which ones? Because the world system is like, All right, I know I can't keep those commandments, but we've got to be great on a curve here. He says, Which ones? The rich young man knows every time he offers a sacrifice that he hasn't kept the commandments. Uh, but he also knows, you know what? It can't be that nobody gets in. And, I, um, and so I think he thinks we're grading on a curve here. Our son, Kyler, um, when he'd get in trouble for doing things that he wasn't supposed to be doing, he would, he would say things like, well, if if you knew what my friends were up to, you would think I was an angel, you know? I and mean, I was like Well, it might be true. But if you compare yourself favorably to losers, you're a loser. You might be a better loser, but you're still a loser. And I'm not advocating that as parenting advice, by the way. That's not what I'm saying, but what I but he was grading on a curve. He was saying, you know what? You should know what these knuckleheads around me are doing. And the rich young ruler is kind of doing the same thing when he says, well, don't tell me about keeping the commandments. Which ones? Because ain't nobody around here keeping all of them. I i know way better than him. Um, Jesus' answer is interesting. He says, which ones? Jesus says. He doesn't say all of them. He says he shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not bear false witness. You honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And there's something that all of those commandments have in common. They're external. They're things we show. You can display a form of righteousness without having a clean heart. And you can still do these things. As as the Old Testament defined murder, that was taking a knife to somebody. It wasn't murder of the heart. As they defined adultery, it was physically doing things. It was not adultery of the heart. Um, You could be a good, pious, young man and obey those. The Pharisees were grading on a curve. They were telling people not to do this stuff. And it's why Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, talks about murder and adultery of the heart. It's because all of those things point to internal heart issues, but if you leave them as as externals, good, pious people without Jesus can still do those things. but that's why Jesus refers to the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs. It says in Matthew 23, later in the same book, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. These wives were keeping the external signs of the law. They had the appearance of piety, but inside their hearts were corrupt and horrible. And Jesus is trying to avoid that with this rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler gets it, by the way. And I think the world gets it too. As much as we promote this idea of you're good enough and I'm good enough and we're all basically good people and blah, blah, blah. There's something in us that knows. And something right with that. Because I If you knew my deepest, darkest thoughts, I wouldn't be up here. And if I knew yours, um, you might not be there either. Uh, But we don't. Um, The rich, and there's something in us that just knows that. We know that we aren't good enough. We know we're not as good as we appear and just as the rich young man intuitively knows there is an eternal life, he also knows he's not good enough to get there on his own. He, he knows he lacks something. And his response to Jesus is, all of these, all those external things I've kept, what do I still lack? He knows there's something. Remember, Jesus is God. He has some advantages in these conversations we don't necessarily have, right? We have the Spirit within us and will give us discernment, but we read throughout Matthew, Jesus knowing their thoughts said, or Jesus perceiving their thoughts said, and it's like, well, evangelism would be a lot easier if I could do that. But Jesus can, and he says, in response, he knows the rich young man's weakness, his idol, and he reveals it with his response. And his response is, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. If, you want, if you're going to try this righteousness thing away from, apart from Christ, if you're going to try it according to the world's standards, guess what? You better get rid of all the other idols first. But in the world's gospel... We're not able to be good enough. The rich young man knows the truth. He knows he's not good enough. He doesn't argue. He doesn't rationalize. He's sad. He doesn't even deny. He just walks away. In verse 22, it says, When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He walks away sad because he knows Jesus is right, but he can't be perfect, and he knows that too. And often this is where the story ends, right? We think, oh, you know, don't be like that guy who walked away. Don't be like that guy who walked away, by the way. But that's not where the story ends. Silly, greedy, rich young man should have just sold his possessions, had been more generous to the poor, and everything would have been cool. Well, no, because even if he'd done that, something else would have happened. You can't be perfectly righteous. That's the whole point of the law. Um, and God doesn't create on a curve. That isn't how he established righteousness. That isn't how justice works. Justice means that when you do something wrong, that gets paid for somehow. And when we've had wrongs done to us, we expect it's going to be paid for. Somebody is going to pay for that. And it wouldn't be justice if that didn't happen. Uh, The good news is, this isn't where the story ends. Jesus Christ starts to give the good news of this story. The first thing he does is he identifies the problem. Verse 23, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. No, Jesus is not engaging in class warfare. Jesus isn't a Democrat. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I thought I was going to get more of a laugh out of that. This is obviously not, this is obviously not a Republican crowd. Um, I, I am teasing about that. This is, this, is, this is not class warfare. He's not picking on the guy for being rich. He's saying what you perceive as being the people most likely to get into heaven It's easier for a camel, which is one of the biggest animals in the Middle East, to go through the eye of a needle, which is one of the smallest openings in a home. That's easier than for the most likely people to get into heaven. And so he's not picking on rich people. He's saying, you know what? Nobody can do this. And the disciples get that right away, right? Uh, Because their response is, who can be saved? And at this point, I do want to say there is a particular problem with being rich. And I want to talk to the people in the church because what we consider rich is like, um, you know, I, I I own a house in LA, I own a house in Miami, and I own a house in France. But what the world considers rich I got a car and I got a roof that doesn't leak. And I got three meals a day. Most of us, by the world standards, not all of us, most of us are rich by the world standards. And there is a problem. Uh, it seems, both scripturally and our own experience, that poor people are more likely to accept Christ than rich people. And if you look at judges, there's a great example of this. This is a little bit of an aside, but where with me? Um, judges, people are in trouble, and they cry out to God, and God brings a deliverer, and they, um, and their trouble goes away, and they become prosperous, and they forget God, and they get into trouble. that as they become, as they become prosperous, as they become less reliant on God to meet their daily needs, uh, they fall away from God. And I think um, as we, as a, as a nation, have become more affluent, we, perceive, we have a perceived lower need for God. We have this idea in our heads that we don't need God as much as maybe we used to. We have more pride in ourselves and we've fallen away from Christianity. We have this illusion of control. We do quantitative easing and we manage the economy now. Guess what? The day God decides there's going to be a recession or a depression, guess what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Um, If we don't feel we need to rely on God, though, we forget God. We forget that God is the source of our blessings. We have this pride. I remember watching this movie with John Wayne in it, and he says, and we landed on Plymouth Rock, and we said, thank you for getting us here. We'll take it from here. That's kind of the American ethic is, you got us this far, and by golly, we're going to take it from here. And guess what? It's pride. Um, And there's a sense in which Once we start to have a a wealth to us, other people start to puff us up. As a nation, we see this. Everybody wants to be like Americans. Everybody wants to come to America. As individuals, the richest among us are going to have a lot more friends than the poorest among us. I've got a friend that lives um, close by. He's a neighbor. And he's telling me this weekend he's going to L.A. for a dinner. He's an art dealer in Los Angeles. And he's driving to LA because he was invited to a dinner, and the actor Chris Pine is going to be there. So he's driving from Sacramento to LA because he's going to be at a big dinner. It isn't like it's 10 people or probably 100 or more people at this thing. And in the hopes that he might get to meet Chris Pine, it's like, I know exactly how many strangers are willing to drive to be at a dinner with Jeff Marshall. Um, you know, if you could have negative people at a dinner, that's the number that would be there because of Jeff Marshall. I, I promise you that. And so Christ identifies the problem. Nobody could get into heaven in their own merits. And he gives an example to show how absurd it would be that rich people would be able to get in. He says it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than that. Um, Disciples get in immediately, like I said. They're like, well, who can be saved? If rich people can't be saved, who can be saved? Now that Jesus identified the problem, he's going to identify the solution. The solution is, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And then he introduces us to the hope of the gospel. And this is the gospel of Christ. This is the foundation of Christianity. This is what, when you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. It's the gospel that is our hope. I want you to compare the disciples and the rich young man. Peter, love Peter, right? Says... Unlike this rich young man, he says, see, we left everything and followed you. What then will we have? I want you to see that the disciples really weren't any better than the rich young man in terms of their own righteousness. Peter doesn't go to, oh, thank you, Jesus. I'm so glad God is going to fix this for us. He doesn't ask God how he's going to do this amazing work. He basically compares himself to the loser, like Kyler, and says, hey, look, I'm way better. Look at what I did. And he asks for his reward. I was a good guy. What do I get? Um, fast forward like five chapters. Peter's going to deny Jesus three times. He's going to hide when Jesus is crucified. Um. Peter and the disciples are no more able to get to heaven on their own than the rich young ruler. The difference is they were called by Jesus and the rich young man wasn't. Earlier in Matthew, we see where Jesus called the disciples to himself and he appointed them as apostles. And these are men who were called by Christ. Some of you, if you're a little more theologically minded, you might've heard the phrase an effectual call. It just means that Jesus tapped some people on the shoulder. Um, Isaiah and Romans talking about none of us are righteous, that none of us seek after God, that God has to do the seeking first. And he calls people to himself. But, I don't want to get too Calvinistic, right? Um, But they responded too. They responded and they came under Jesus' authority. And the rich young man didn't. Remember, the rich young man was invited, hey, follow me. He was invited, hey, who do you say that I am? Do you think I'm good like God? The disciples, they followed Jesus. The rich young ruler walked away sad. Um, The disciples, they sought Jesus. They didn't seek eternal life. When you read the accounts of Jesus calling people to his disciples, he says to Peter, he said, you'd be a fisher of men. Peter leaves the nets and he comes. There's no conversation about, all right, what's your eternal life situation look like? And let me compare this to the world and let me me see what your plan is. What's your righteousness look like here? They follow Jesus. The rich young rulers looking for a pathway to eternal life our pathway to eternal life is a relationship with Jesus. It's not a set of rules. And the disciples intuitively, guided by by God himself, they get that. Um, Jesus came to them and sought them. They responded by following Jesus the person, not Jesus the set of rules for getting to heaven. And the disciples abided in Christ. They stayed with Christ. They came under his authority imperfectly. They made mistakes just like we do. And they did pay a cost. They put their careers on hold. They left their families. And the rich young man was unwilling to pay the same cost. Just as we compare the disciples to the rich young man, we compare the hope offered to the disciples to that of the rich young man. They were under the same human condition, but one accepted Christ and came under his authority, however imperfectly, and the other didn't. See, the blessings come after the decision to follow Christ, not in order to gain Christ's acceptance. Uh, Verse 28 says, Truly, this is Jesus, Truly I say to you in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He's saying to the disciples, you ask what's the reward? Here's the reward. There is a reward in this for you. He goes on to kind of... you know, chastise him a little bit for asking the question, but he does say, hey, there is a reward here. And the reward is because you accepted me. You abide in me. You came under my authority. It isn't that you followed this set of rules in order to get this benefit. It is... You have a relationship with me, and here's the benefit that comes with that. Distinction makes sense, I hope. Um, And I'll note here, and this is the sad part of the story, is that the rich young ruler will have eternal life. The soul continues after death, and we are all eternal beings. We're either going to have eternal life living the presence and the glory of God, or we're going to have it absent the glory of God, absent His joy, His provision, His protection, and His goodness. And that's the place we sometimes call hell. Um, We get what we choose. I had a pastor who used to say about the end times, you you get what you believe, you know, that if you believe that you, you know, if you're dispensational, premillennial, you get to go first. If you think you lived through the ra- rapture, that's what you get. Uh, <clears throat> I don't ascribe to that, by the way, but it's pretty, pretty entertaining. You know, and made a lot of people uh, pre-trib, pre-rapture people. <laughs> but, <clears throat> um, but with the gospel, you get what you believe. You get what you want. You want You want to be judged on your own righteousness? You got it. You want an eternity apart from Christ? You think you can do a better job yourself? You got it. You want an eternity with Christ? You get it. Um, Jim Elliott once said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The rich young man was a fool. He was unwilling to give what could not be kept, to gain what could not be lost, eternal life in heaven with Jesus. The world's gospel of working your own salvation is foolish. For all of us um, who accept Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, who accept that gospel that is offered by Christ, who respond to his call. Verse 29 says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold. And it isn't that we just get the benefits of a relationship with Jesus in heaven, though that would be enough. We get them today, even in trials, We live in the assurance that God is working for our good, redeeming the hard things of life, and giving us a hope that doesn't disappoint. Whether you're a Christian or not, you're going to go through hard things. Christianity doesn't insulate you from hard things. But Christianity gives those hard things purpose. Sorry. Christianity gives us a hope. It builds in us a character. Um, And we know that God is going to redeem those things and make good out of the horrible things of our lives. And we live in that hope. Verse 29 says, and we'll inherit eternal life. So we go through all that. We get this benefit today and we get eternal life too. And that eternal life with Christ is a place with no tears, no injustice and perfect love. It's a pretty good deal. And I already, you might want to consider it. Um, <clears throat> if I can conclude. This is a story of two religions. One believes, like the rich young ruler, you can do something to earn eternal life. One believes, as Christians, you can do nothing to earn eternal life. And the problem with the world's religion is that it just doesn't work. We just aren't capable of being good enough on our own. As Christians, most of us. Re- oh. You are my new best friend. Thank you so much. <laughs> ah, bless you. <clears throat> As Christians, most of us are relieved. When I hear somebody teach this, I'm always like, oh man, is this the one where they finally tell me I gotta sell everything I, they convince me I gotta sell everything I own, give it to the poor and live in my van for the rest of my life, right? Most of us are relieved that we aren't called to sell all that we own and give it to the poor. We're relieved that there's some pastor that tells us, no, that's not really what they're talking about here. They're not even telling us, though we should, to be more generous, to have more gratitude, or try to be a little more perfect. The story doesn't end with the rich young ruler walking away and us being told, don't be like him, be better. The bad news is you can't be better. That's the story. No one in this story is good except Christ on their own. Not the disciples, not the rich young man. The disciples, like us, enter the kingdom of heaven and get eternal life on the basis of Christ's work, not on the basis of our work. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The disciples weren't better than the rich young man. They were prideful and obstinate. Peter, the rock on whom the church was to be built, denied Christ 3 times. Thomas doubted the resurrection. They all fled, leaving Christ alone to face the crucifixion. Though imperfect, they were called, and they responded to that call by submitting to Christ's authority. We sometimes, in the Christian vernacular, we call it dying to self. Even as saved people, we can be sinful and often we are. We don't lose salvation when we sin because we didn't do anything to get salvation. Christ did it. Our obedience is an outflow of love and gratitude and the Spirit lovingly us, guiding us into Christ's likeness So the pressure's off. Satan knew something, and he knows something. If you've read the book of Job, you know that Job had all of his possessions taken from him and he was still faithful. Satan says to God, all that a man has, he will give for his life, touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. I'm talking to the church now. You have two elders, both of whom are personally afflicted or have loved ones afflicted with life-threatening physical issues and they're called to be faithful. You think about how hard it would be to be faithful if you were called to sell everything you had and give to the poor. Think about that. Then know how hard it is to be faithful when you're going through something where you would gladly give everything you have to not be going through that thing. know it's harder for them. Know it's harder for them to abide in Christ. Know it's harder for them to be obedient given their circumstances. You pray for them. You pray for their families. You pray for them to have strength and wisdom and courage to abide in Christ and remain obedient to Him. The good news for them and for us is that the Jesus who guides us has been through this too. We have in Christ a high priest who intercedes on our behalf, who has lived without possessions and physically suffered to the point of death. He knows the temptation. He knows the pain. And he promises to give us the strength and the faith to endure. Following Jesus is hard, but it's not as hard as not following Jesus. And I I address this to, to... the church here as well is that my previous church, we used to say that the church had a table from which it served the body and the community. And that the size of that table was dependent on the number of people involved and the level of activity of those involved. Both of your elders are now involved in great personal struggles, and your table is smaller as a result. <clears throat> this is when the church, both the Big C church and the Little sea church, Need to be more prayerful, more supportive, more graceful, but also more active and more committed under the guidance of your leadership so that you can keep the size of your table to serve one another in the community. The good news is that God gives us the call and He asks us to respond. He gives us the power and He asks us to operate in that power. And He gives us the rewards. And he asks us to be faithful in light of those rewards. If you are here today wondering how to be called, maybe you're being called this morning. You can respond to his call by agreeing that Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior, following him and being obedient to his will. <clears throat> by doing so today, you can enter his kingdom and enjoy his rewards. And in this life and in the coming kingdom. <clears throat> And if you'd like to talk about that, I'll be up front. Hit me up. Let me close this in prayer. God, these are hard days and these are hard times and we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the assurance that you give us of our salvation. We're thankful for the assurance that you give us that no matter how much we screw up, you did the work of giving us salvation and eternal life and we just get to rest in that as we abide in you and as we, uh, um, as we operate under your will and your power, God. We pray for Tim and Elisa. We pray for Kelly and Linda. We pray for their families, God. I just pray for this church. You're doing and will continue to do an incredible work in this church, God. And I just pray that you would give the leadership of this church wisdom, Give the people of this church wisdom in knowing how best to support one another, support the community, and support the work of your kingdom in this pocket of Santa Rosa, God. Help them to know how to support their leaders. And help them to know the comfort um, and the peace that comes with your grace, God, and the grace that you give us.